1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come to your word this morning, we are reminded that we are dependent creatures. Our lives subsist in you. It's in you that we live and that we move and that we have our being. And it's by you and your grace that we have any knowledge and understanding of your greatness. And so, Lord, we come dependent once again this morning, asking that you would speak and that you would dig out ears for us that we could hear and listen. And so refresh us and renew us and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It is good to be back. We were away for several weeks traveling up and down I-95, and no, it's not gotten any better. (laughs) Traveling in and out of I-10, out west to the Florida Panhandle, receiving children back, dodging thunderstorms, and trying to locate Chick-fil-A's. That is family vacation, correct? (laughs) Clean bathrooms and some decent food. And inevitably, part of that family vacation is your children asking, are we there yet? They mark time now by how many movies they've watched, and they expect that at the end of each movie, they're going to be there at the destination. We noted that that's the commonplace thing in family life, and it hasn't just been created in this century, that things were needed to kill time. And the pilgrims of Israel, as they traveled three times a year to the city of Jerusalem for worship, had certain customs and traditions that they observed. We find those customs and traditions in the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. They are traveler's songs, hymns that were sung along the way. But they're not simply things that kill time. We've seen that there's far more actually involved, that these songs possess the wisdom of Israel. Theology and spirituality were encoded, that as these were sung, they were learning what it is to have life with God and what to expect from the world around them. And across these travelers' songs, we do see one strong and difficult theme. And that is that these songs affirm that there is sorrow, there is trouble, there is grief, and there is turmoil along the way for Christian pilgrims. After all, what we've seen is in Psalm 120 that there are lying lips. That is, that we live in a world filled with deceit on individual and corporate levels. In Psalm 121, we saw that there are greedy thugs and there are also idolatrous shrines that were surrounded by trouble. In 123, we saw that we have contemptuous peers. That is, those who perhaps proclaim our same faith and yet hold us in contempt. In 124, we notice that there are those who contend against us. 
And Psalm 126 captures all of this and puts it in a very compact phrase. In verse 5, we read that we sow in tears. And doesn't that just get it? That this is the nature of our lives. That there's a wintry kind of experience for the Christian in which we deal with sorrow and trouble and trial and sadness. That this is part of the Christian life. And young Israelite children were acclimated into this as they sang these songs to understand that this is the context in which they live. And God acclimates us to it as well today. In his novel, Crossing to Safety, Wallace Stegner tells the story of two families. They were two families that meet in graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin. And then the novel proceeds to trace them through their lives together. They go through years of famine and feast, difficulty, hardship, joy, and blessing. Their lives are very much like your lives. It's a very common novel. And their lives are like our lives because they were complicated. They were filled with joy and also with sadness. Towards the end, one of the main character dies. Spoiler alert. And then Stegner comments this way with the narrator's voice. If we could have foreseen the future during those good days in Madison where all of this began, we might not have had the nerve to venture into it. In other words, if they had known all the sorrow and the tragedy and the sadness that lay before them, that they were going to experience, they might not have had the courage to launch out into life. The message is simple. Sorrow and sadness have the capacity to win. And so we have scripture affirming for us this morning, sorrow and sadness are part of our existence. And then we all feel the power of Stegner's concern. We all know that tragedy, sorrow, sadness can have such incredible, can put such incredible pressure upon our faith. And so it raises the question, is there an answer to this dilemma? What are we supposed to do with this? Does God have anything to offer to us? Is there anything that God provides that can counter this sorrow and sadness that we most certainly will encounter through the course of our lives? When we arrive at Psalm 126, we see that something else is affirmed for us. Not only is there sorrow and trial, trouble and difficulty, but we also find in these hymns that there is a characteristic defined of the Christian life, joy. Twice in the psalm it's affirmed. And so intermingled in the midst of all sorrow and sadness, in these hymns that are for the people of God, in all of our tears and all of our heartache, we're also told that joy can be and will be found. Because, you see, joy is not a prerequisite for the Christian life. It's rather a consequence of it. It's something that finds us. It's a gift that God gives. It's not something that we can purchase. It's not something that we can control. But rather, it's something that descends from God in his grace. And this joy actually gets the last word over suffering and pain and difficulty that enables us to venture out into life. And so the prime question for us this morning is, how do we get it? And there's two things in Psalm 126 that we see. First, we recall our history. Follow with me, verse 1. 
When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Continuing in verse 2, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. In verses 1 through 3, the psalm begins with a remembrance of God's grace and mercy. It's captured in a phrase that's used throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, restore our fortunes. When the Lord restored our fortunes, and this phrase refers to a decisive act from God in which he reverses harsh and difficult conditions and brings about newness and times of restoration and refreshment. And so the psalmist is recalling a time where God intervened and interrupted their lives and acted in grace to reverse their fortunes. And we're being directed in that way. He says that they were like those who dream. As they recall the experience, they're remembering what it was like when God intervened on their behalf, what God did for them, that he changes things in his grace and mercy. And this is where the path to joy begins. It requires an active memory that we look back not only in our lives, but through the pages in the history that we find in the Bible that's recorded for us. And the psalm doesn't speak specifically about which particular event. Rather, it speaks rather generically and vaguely. And some people ask, well, why is that? And it is because there's not one event that God wants to capture for us here, but rather a multiplicity of events that all of the acts and the deliverance of God that God wants us to remember what he did for his people that were held captive in Egypt. And how he heard their cries when they were required to make more bricks with less straw. And how he entered in and delivered them from the harsh hand of Pharaoh. And then God wants us to remember what he did for his people in the wilderness. When they are in the desert without food and their lives are in jeopardy. And how he spread a table for them there, providing manna. He wants us to remember what he did for David in all of David's personal crisis that he faced. Personal crises in his own life due to his own sin. National crises that were related to the conflict with the world around him. We are to remember this and to recall it. We're to remember what God did in the prophets, promising a restoration for the people who had been thrown into exile due to their own sin, and how God brought this about in 538 BC. They were like those who dream. It was unimaginable that they were going to return. He wants us to remember Sennacherib in 2 Kings 19, where God delivered Israel from certain destruction at the haughty and boastful words of Sennacherib, who was about to destroy the city. But chiefly, we're to remember that all of these deliverances were shadows of one primary deliverer who was yet to come. Chiefly, we're to remember Jesus and all God did in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, and then his ascension into glory. What God has done on our behalf to deliver us from sin and death by undergoing the powers of sin and death and then conquering through them in the resurrection. Yes, this is what we're to remember and we're like those who dream. When all of this comes to mind, and when we remember the event where God interrupted our lives, where he came to you, and you 
began to understand that God was for you in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And he also granted you a hope against the power of sin that you can struggle against it in this life. And he grants you a hope beyond the grave. That yes, that event where you understood that your God is for you and speaks a yes to you that's unalterable in Jesus Christ. We're to remember all of this. And we recall this history knowing that God has done great things for us. To know that he has filled our mouths with laughter. He has given us songs of joy. In the middle of present circumstances, we need to exercise that memory. Now, what is the practical challenge that we face? We have short-term memory. (laughs) Every one of us struggles with it. And that short-term memory in particular is driven by our fears and our anxieties. That in the present moment, when we attempt to remember who God is and what he has done, we oftentimes simply allow our fears and our anxieties to swallow that memory. Despite the fact that from the scriptures, from cover to cover, what we have is an impressive testimony of God's promise and then his faithfulness to that promise over and over, time and time again. I've been told that a goldfish has the memory capacity of three seconds. Perhaps this explains why they can live in such a small bowl. Every time they circle, it's new. (laughs) And aren't we something like that? Like that goldfish, we forget. And so we have to cultivate, and this is where the discipline of reading the scriptures becomes so important for every one of us. See, it's not important just to read the Bible one time through one year, somewhere back in your life. But day by day, we need constantly, and week by week, and year by year, we need to be working the scriptures into the fabric of our lives to know the great things that God has done. And that when our fears and our anxieties arise in the present, we encounter that with the history of all of God's dealings with his people and with us. And this is the first step, the psalm says, towards joy, is remembering these past acts of God on our behalf. Now this leads to the second. Because what we see in verses 4 through 6 is that we call upon God to act for us. That is, when we remember these great events, the great things God has done for us, this then moves us in a particular direction. Look where the psalmist goes. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That we shift from a memory exercise, a historical exercise, into supplication. Now, why is that? And how does that move take place? You see, the exercise of memory in which we look back at the great things God has done is never mere history. But rather, as we look at the great events of God, we're learning who God is and how he acts and the God who reigns over us today. We're led by those historical events by the hand to the living God. He's the same God yesterday and today and forever. And so it's never just mere history. It is history to know what God is like. And the God who promises to you today will be faithful and true. That his yes is unalterable. That he won't fail. That he'll make good on every one of his promises. 
And so the history serves this present purpose of calling upon God that he restore our fortunes. It's interesting because the Apostle Peter actually picks up this language of restoration. It's in his second sermon in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3 and verses 19 through 20, he speaks of God bringing times of refreshing through repentance as we await the great restoration that God will bring when Jesus Christ returns to the world. And this is exactly what we are asking for when we exercise this historical memory and we then turn to God and pray. We're praying for times of restoration now, that God bring refreshment, that he renew us and sustain us. And then we're also praying that God ultimately restore the fortunes of all creation, that he remove the stain of sin, and that he bring it into judgment, and that he destroy it, and he trample down death, and that all things would then be turned over to him, and all the creation would be renewed and restored to what it was intended to be. That's the direction of our supplications. And we're once again told that there will be shouts of joy. In the present, there are shouts of joy as we sow with our tears. As we still experience those difficulties, those trials and those troubles, we so anticipate the future because we're convinced that the God of the past, who has done all these great things and who's raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, that that was the down payment on every bit of grace that will come in the future. And so we're certain, we're confident. The psalmist says, in his request to God, that he restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. It's a weird cultural phrase, perhaps, but the Negev represents a geographical location in Israel that was very dry and arid. There were wadis, or what we know as box canyons. And so there was very little rain, but when the rain would come, it simply wasn't soaked into the ground. The ground was too hard. Rather, the rain in, in situations, geographical and topographical situations like this, flows very violently into set dry stream beds. And if you've ever seen this in the American West, perhaps, you'll know that it can be very dangerous. That it is sudden, it's instant, it can trap you, it carries things away, it's a violent tumult. And what's interesting is that the psalmist pictures the grace of God restoring the fortunes like that. He's calling upon God to act immediately, to bring deliverance, that he would bring grace and pour it down and wash over the face of creation in such a moment, an instant, in his power that things would be renewed and fortunes restored. And so this is what we do to experience joy. We recall God's historical past redemptive acts, the great things he has done throughout the history of Scripture and throughout the history of our own lives. And then we translate that memory into trust, that the same God who did all of these great things is the God who watches over us today and will be the God who is with us tomorrow, that he's constant and he's continuous in his care and affection and his promises for us. But there's one last fruit that comes from this, this joy that we then experience as we look back to God and we look forward with God. What does this joy give us? It allows us to press forward in hope. 
If you follow in verse 5, the psalmist says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We believe that this God who acted in the past will once again act. He will deliver. He will renew. And so we can go out sowing. And the challenge for the farmer in sowing is he doesn't know what the other side is going to produce. It may be a difficult year. And friends, that is the condition of our lives. We live with that uncertainty. But by faith, we sow. And what we're promised by this God is that we will reap that there will be a harvest, that tears will be replaced with shouts of joy, that there will be laughter, our tongues will be filled with praise. And so we find here the key to endurance, the continuing of life in the middle of trouble, in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of trials, in the middle of sadness, and that we persevere Because we're confident of the God who has acted, is acting today, and will act still yet again. Paul wraps up 1 Corinthians 15, which we read from, with these words. After speaking of the great resurrection hope, he says, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Your life is not in vain, despite the trouble. It's not in vain because you have a steadfast and faithful God who undergirds you and upholds you through his promises in Jesus Christ. Look to him. Hold to him. Let's pray.